Hello, I'm Meryl April and I'm a partner at CN Murray. And I'm Louise O'Connor and I'm a senior associate at CN Murray. And we were talking just recently about hybrid working as we're moving into 2023 and the fact that it seems here to stay despite the fact that COVID, we hope, is now um, receding into the rearview mirror. And one thing that really interested me about it was the Manpower Global Survey for the last quarter of 2022, because that's a global survey covering 40,000 employers, I think, over 41 countries. And it seems that across the world, everyone is wrestling with the fact that employees have strong bargaining power now. And even where there may be an economic downturn, maybe new employees find that they're not able to negotiate some of the amazing benefits they got during COVID. Existing employees are not willing to give up those hard fought sort of um, benefits such as homeworking. And I saw one statistic or one case study, I guess, from that survey that said they had tried to introduce contracts where the homeworking was not guaranteed and 75% of the employees refused to sign them. What kind of thing are you seeing, Louise, in this area? It's interesting. I think it's, it's exactly like you said. I was looking at the Hayes Workplace Reality Guide uh, for 2022, and, and they referred to an IBM survey done recently, which unsurprisingly is a global survey done of workers and it found that approximately half said that in the future their strong preference was to work mainly from home. Again, it's not surprising and this sort of preference for working from home I think is certainly not a new phenomenon but obviously the pandemic has accelerated and amplified that discussion and I think it's as you said we're at the point where um, in a sort of still a fairly candidate driven market uh, this opportunity to work from home or hybrid working is not being seen as a benefit or an incentive for a lot of employees. They're seeing this as a core requirement for them. And so it's, I think a lot of these candidates are taking the view that if this is not automatically a given that I will have this option for hybrid working, I'll go somewhere else and I'll find an employer that will give it to me. So in whatever form and, and to whatever extent, I think we can very safely say that hybrid working is here to stay. I think you're right. But one thing that really worries me about it is I'm not sure that employers have thought carefully enough about the discrimination issues that arise or could arise um, out of hybrid working. What, what are your thoughts on that? I think that's exactly right, because we know about protection um, against discrimination in employment law, and we know that employees um, they have the right to, to be protected. Um, an employer cannot discriminate um, against um, their employees on the grounds of their protected characteristic, uh, of which there are nine, include things like age, um, gender, race. One that I think is particularly interesting, though, in the context of this sort of hybrid working and home working, is disability. If an employee is disabled, um, you know, an employer must make a reasonable adjustment. Um, to help them to overcome that disadvantage that they have in work. Now, in, in some cases, that can be uh, quite easy to see what that reasonable adjustment could look like. This could include things like having a ramp installed in the office for a wheelchair user, or perhaps you have an employee who's been out sick for a period and you allow them to make a phased return to work. I think that's sort of a, employers know and they're fairly clued up on their obligations in that scenario. 
I think that's easier to see when you're in a physical office and you're seeing people every day. I think in talking about things like the pandemic, I wonder how would that work with, um, and we've seen it quite a bit, with employees with say long COVID, for example, is long COVID considered as a disability? And if it is, what would reasonable adjustments look like in that context, do you think? That is such a great question because uh, as you say, we're seeing that. We're seeing employers wrestling with employees coming in saying they've got long COVID and citing all kinds of symptoms and problems that they're having in seeking to get back to full health. And there's very little guidance. Uh, so the EHRC were originally saying that uh, they did not consider long COVID to be a disability because it's not mentioned, obviously, in the Act. You've got things like cancer, MS, HIV, clearly automatic disabilities. And then you've got some people with apparently very severe symptoms uh, who are struggling in the workplace, but they may or may not have a disability. And the courts have only just started to wrestle with that. I really think we're going to see a lot more in 2023. But I saw, I think there were two first instance cases in Scotland, and the symptoms of the employees seemed fairly similar. But in one case, the employee was found to have a disability, and in the other case, they weren't. So that leaves uh, employers struggling a bit to know how to treat people. So what do they then do about adjustments? How do they approach that issue? And I think um, what they need to focus on is that part of Section 20 that talks about provision, criterion or practice. So it's not the ramp situation, but something where you're requiring someone to do something and because of their long COVID symptoms, it's harder for them to comply with it. So homeworking is a really interesting one in that context, because is it a disadvantage to that person to work from home or is it a disadvantage to force them into the office? And I don't think that's a straightforward question that's always going to be answered the same way. So first of all, the employer must identify that provision, that requirement. And secondly, they must then think about what reasonable steps they could take to um, remove the disadvantage or at least lessen it. And there the EHRC is saying, well, what you need to do is follow the current guidance. They haven't produced anything that you, you can go to a button and look up long COVID, but you've got sort of lists of reasonable adjustments that have been found in cases that have been decided in relation to other disabilities. So some of the things that, that you mentioned, such as working shorter hours, either for a short period or, or for a more prolonged period, um, taking additional rest breaks, maybe even if someone's saying, well, I've got brain fog, that's part of long COVID, I, I can't do very precise work, but I'm very happy to work on sort of longer projects where I've got time to check my work. You know, if that's someone working on something time critical, then maybe the employer needs to consider, can they afford to get someone else in to do that part of the job or move some of those duties away to another employee? And one that I think is, is definitely relevant is if an employer is going to look at redundancy and absence is going to be one of the criteria, they probably are going to have to say any absence that uh, is identified as long COVID absence we have to take out of the equation when we're looking at the number of absence days for the purposes of redundancy selection. So, yeah, I think uh, it, it's one that's going to develop. But at the moment, the, the clear guidance is follow what's already there in relation to other disabilities. 
I think that's that's interesting, isn't it? Because obviously every individual is different and every illness and or disability potentially is, is different. But we sort of know with some of the illnesses you mentioned, some of the potential symptoms that people may have. I think there's a, a bit of an unknown, obviously, with long COVID and the uh, medical community are still learning about this. It's it's a new thing. So I think it's very difficult for employers to be sort of mindful of potential symptoms here. As we say, these things are just developing and we hear things like brain fog and fatigue, but I think it, it is a real unknown for them. Um, and I think it, it is about, as you say, following the, the established guidance that's there in relation to other disabilities and um, checking in with occupational health, checking in with the, the employee regularly, checking in with their doctors, having the, the circle um, and sort of trying to, to navigate this uncertain terrain. Exactly. It's, you, you've hit on it. It's that medical evidence, isn't it, that's important. And whilst I suppose disability discrimination might be an obvious problem for uh, employers looking at hybrid working, it may not be the only form of discrimination at, at play here. And I wondered whether um, something like race discrimination is also an issue in this context. What do you think? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because we were discussing this recently. Um, and so obviously that's another race is another protected characteristic um, under the, the Equality Act. Um, and so race can include somebody's color, their citizenship or their ethnic or national origin. And it's this last one that has been a little bit interesting, um, ethnic or national origin, because there's been there's been a few cases quite recently um, which related to the, the, the fact pattern related to someone's accent. And there's two particular cases that were broadly similar, an employee complaining that their manager had mocked their accent. And while you can understand the, the different outcomes, it seems slightly perverse in a way, because one, uh, the employee with an Irish accent um, was held to, to um, have this protected characteristic because it was on the grounds of his national origin whereas the employee with the Liverpool accent was held not to because it was a regional um, accent. And as I say, you can understand the distinction there, but it seems um, when you look at it with fairly similar fact patterns, I wonder who would that definition end up expanding slightly and encompassing more people, I suppose, offering more protection um, to people on, on characteristics that might not have seemed the, the most obvious um, ones to start. I mean, we're talking about accent here in the context of race. So accent discrimination has been possibly um, something that's protected on the grounds of race discrimination. But I wonder, as opposed to even just expanding the definition of race discrimination, could there be a protected characteristic for socioeconomic background, for example? Now, that doesn't exist at the moment. There has been some conversations about it. But I think that could really end up protecting um, a lot more people. Yeah. So many obvious things, I suppose, came to the front uh, when this pandemic first started and everybody was shut into an immediate lockdown. A lot of people, most people, particularly people working in, you know, uh, professional services firms, we all got standard reminders on confidentiality and keeping you know, your materials locked up in a safe room and making sure there's you know, confidentiality observed and you've got a safe and secure place to work in the home. You think, well, what happened to people who couldn't do that? What happened to somebody who was living in a share house? What happened to somebody who was, had a share room? What if somebody didn't have somewhere to go? And, and obviously there was, there was very little options at that time. And I wonder what employers can do going forward um, to ensure that in this hybrid working situation that people from certain socioeconomic backgrounds are not disadvantaged further. Yeah, I think that's a real challenge, isn't it, for hybrid working? Because 
that isn't going to go away. There are going to be people who maybe moved a long way out of Manchester or London because it was where they could afford and now it would simply be unaffordable to travel into work or they may have taken on caring responsibilities um, and have other responsibilities that means that they're relying now on, on working from home at least part of the time. So I think, again, if, if you're developing a policy as an employer, you're going to have to go back to that legal framework of, of the PCP. And it, it's fairly obvious that, that, that the provision or requirement is going to be something around core days, number of days in the office, and you need to have a view on it. But in forming that view, you need to think, is everybody that I want to employ going to be able to comply with that? And if not, what would be a reasonable step to, to take to adjust to their particular circumstances? And as you say, it's not yet a legal requirement, but in a battle for talent and, and for the people that you want to keep, uh, you're going to have to think about those things as an employer. Uh, and again, I think employers really worry about this because they know that if they treat one person one way and another person another way, that in itself could cause discrimination. And they also worry about costs. So I think it's important to remember that the steps that you take, they have to be reasonable. Note the law does not require you to take unreasonable steps. And that includes the cost of something that has to be reasonable. And secondly, it has to be something that actually addresses the problem. So I do think employers probably are going to have to be a bit creative, uh, not just regional hubs, but maybe thinking about bespoke solutions. But in order to avoid discrimination, they're going to have to explain themselves and put it out clearly into a policy. Um, otherwise, they could be creating more issues than they're solving. I think I think that's exactly right. Um, and it's interesting you, you mentioned policies there. Obviously, we love our policies and employment lawyers, but I do think 2023 is going to be a time, um, well, hopefully, where, where various policies will need to, to be updated. Um, and I suppose flexible working um, is possibly going to be one of them because we've got some changes um, on the horizon with that. Um, we don't know exactly when these are going to be implemented, but but we know that they're they're coming. Um, so we've been told. I think there was a there was a consultation that closed. I think late in 2021, a government response. Interestingly, I think the the Conservative Party had committed in their 2019 manifesto to reforming um, the position on flexible working requests, which was interesting um, in light of what ended up happening um, in 2020. Um, but I think there's there's some very, we got the government response to the consultation last month, um, and there are some significant um, changes that they've committed to there. Um, and I think they're, they're very interesting, again, in this context of home working and flexible working as well. Firstly, they've committed to making this right to request flexible working a day one right as opposed to people previously or currently uh, have to be employed for 26 weeks before they have the right to make it. Now, obviously, again, this is not a right for flexible working, but it's a right to request it um, from day one. So I think that is going to be interesting. They've also amending it so that people will be allowed to make two requests within a 12 month period rather than just one. And they've also accelerated the time within which employers must respond to um, a request. And they've also, interestingly, going to remove the requirement for an employee to have to consider the effect their request would have um, on their colleagues. So I think that's obviously still something employers are going to have to consider. 
Um, but I think there, there's some very interesting changes proposed there. Um, as I say, it doesn't change the ultimate um, outcome that ultimately we're talking about somebody's right to request flexible working rather than a right to have it. But it's clearly putting, I think, some more power um, on employees. And I do think ultimately it's for the employer to consider whether you know this will be reasonable and if not, why not? And you know, could they they make this work? But I think they're really going to have to consider um, each one on their merits here. And they're going to have to think beyond things they would have said a few years ago. Um, I think genuinely meaning it, but that wouldn't work. Work at home just wouldn't work for our company. It just wouldn't work because we all have to be in an office together. And da -da -da. that's not going to cut it now, is it? That sort of thing. It's like, well, we know that it, it can be done. Um, it's not to say that they have to, that an employer will have to accede to every flexible working request. But I think they're really going to have to think about their reasons for refusing it or thinking whether they actually need to refuse it at all or whether this is something that could work. I, I agree with all of that. So really sex discrimination to add to our list of um, potential discrimination hazards with hybrid working. But to, to conclude, I think I, I just want to make two points, really. One goes back to that point on the hybrid work policy. I think it's not going to be so easy as employers just sending a memo to HR saying, can you just update the hybrid work policy for 2023? And you probably better roll it out and do a bit of training uh, because it's here to stay. That That is not going to wash. People's hybrid work policy must reflect their strategy, which means, of course, you must have a strategy for hybrid work. And every single employer is going to need that. Even if as an employer you say, I'm the employer that is not going to allow any high, any remote working, I want everybody in the office five days a week all the time, just like we had pre-pandemic, unless there's an emergency, you still need to set out that strategy. And then you need your policy to align with the strategy. And to bear in mind that once you set your policy, that's going to impact your culture. So strategy, culture and policy uh, are sort of triumvirate that go together. Secondly, just to say on long COVID, treat it as a disability. Follow the EHRC guidance and you can't go wrong until we have further guidance, perhaps from the EHRC or cases. I think that's that's really sensible. Uh, I suppose if I just could could conclude with maybe a few tips and it's these are not these are things that we're sort of seeing all the time. And um, today it is a, an evolving sort of um, process that's happened very quickly. Um, and I think employers are just trying to work out their their best practice at the moment. And it's a case of, as you say, I suppose, working out what their strategy is and what they want from their employees. And, and if their um, model is to allow some part of hybrid working, it's making that work for everybody, working for the people who are in the office on certain days and working for the people who are out of the office on certain days. And it's trying to, to maintain, I suppose, a bit of some cohesiveness amongst their, their employees. So it's things like if there's going to be training offered, if if Ideally, again, you spoke about core days. It would be nice if things like that could happen on a core day when everyone was in the office. If not, you'd like it ideally to take place you know, in person, but also be take place virtually and being streamed to people. If that's not possible, maybe these things could be recorded so that people can catch up with them afterwards. I think it's things like ensuring that people have equal access to, say, management, um, to managers, to supervision, to guidance, to assistance, whether they're in the actual office or whether they're working from home, that they have the same options for things like career progression, that they don't feel that they've been ignored or sidelined because they're not in the physical office. And I suppose I think that one that comes up a lot, a very minor one, but it's um, 
the dreaded phenomenon of employers saying, are you coming, are you going to work tomorrow? Um, and no, no, I'm going to the office tomorrow. So, so things like that. Let's remember people are working. They have been working um, the, the whole time. And it's, I suppose we're all learning, but it's, it's reframing our language a little bit on things sometimes. I love that point. Language is so important, isn't it? I think we're going to have to leave it there. But thanks so much for sharing your thoughts. And as we go into 2023 further and uh, things develop, we'd love to hear other people's thoughts and ideas and comments. Or if you have any questions, please feel free to contact either Louise or myself. We really would be delighted to hear from you. Thank you.